Well, Bobby Fink is now the new Olympic sensation. He won the 800 and 1500 meter races going away. He's the American swimmer with the trademark finishing kick. Twice in the sport, his sport's longest races, Bobby has come from behind on the last lap to achieve victory. Imagine swimming a whole mile. I can't imagine that. Swimming a whole mile. That's 30 laps in an Olympic pool. Bobby was third for most of the race until they hit the wall for the last 50 meters. He said later, I was confident in my ability to come home. Fink won the race, setting a world record, beating the runner-up by a full body length. As a matter of fact, let's just watch him. There he Here goes. we go. Fink is turning on the jets in lane five. He says, I got another gear, guys. Bobby Fink doing what he did at the 800. Just flashing by Velbrock and Ramonchek. Unbelievable. Fink, the hero in the 800. It's going to beat them all in the 15. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And that, after 29 laps, are you kidding me? Bobby has a secret weapon. No one in the world has as fast a finish. At the end, Bobby has another gear. And likewise, at the end of his life, Jesus shifted into another gear. He had a strong finishing kick. Trust me, Jesus too was confident of his ability to come home. For three and a half years, he had ran his race faithfully. But in those last hours, when all the forces of hell came against him, Jesus found something extra. He left nothing undone. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed to the Father in heaven, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. His final words from the cross echo across the ages. It is finished. Jesus not only paid for our salvation, but he was devoted to his disciples to the very end. As John says of Jesus in chapter 13, verse 1, he loved them to the end. No offense to Bobby Fink, but Jesus is the greatest finisher of all time. Well, chapter 18 begins the final stretch. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now let's start today with a geography lesson. Jerusalem is made up of five hills. To the north, there is Mount Scopus. To the east, the Mount of Olives. To the south, Mount Ophel. And to the west, Mount Zion. Then in the center of the city is Mount Moriah, or what we call Temple Mount. Three valleys are between Jerusalem's five mountains. West of Mount Zion is the Hinnom Valley. Between Mount Zion and Mount Ophel is the Triopian Valley, or as it was called in Jesus' day, the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And then between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives was the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kidron Valley. Now here's an overview of Jesus' movements over his last night. He and his disciples had eaten Passover in the upper room, which was on top of Mount Zion. He then walked east across the city 
over the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the slope of the Mount of Olives. There, he's going to be arrested and led back to Mount Zion, to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. He'll then be turned over to Pilate, who occupies the fortress of Antonio on the Temple Mount. From there, he shuttled back to Mount Zion and to the palace of King Herod. Herod then sends Jesus back to Pilate at the fortress. Finally, Jesus is scourged, and he's forced to carry the cross northward toward Mount Scopus, where he is crucified on top of Mount Moriah. Understand, the whole old city of Jerusalem is less than one square mile. Psalm 122 verse 3 says correctly, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Jerusalem is a tight squeeze. It's a cramped city. You know, whenever we take our tours to Jerusalem, we always stop on top of the Mount of Olives. And I point out the path that Jesus traveled in his final hours before his crucifixion. It's one of those moments when the light clicks on in your head. You can see firsthand the geography, the proximity of the sites. And you realize how all of Jesus' movements could have taken place in such a short span of time. Well, in verse 1 here, we're told Jesus and his men crossed the brook Kidron. It's actually only a brook in the rainy season. The rest of the year, it's a dry, dusty gulch. And yet this brook was full of symbolic significance. When King David was betrayed by his son Absalom and his friend Ahithophel, he crossed the Kidron as he evacuated the city. It was interesting that both of David's betrayers died dangling from a tree in this valley. Absalom's hair got caught in a branch, you remember. Ahithophel hung himself. This story may have been replayed in the mind of the son of David, in our Lord Jesus, as he crossed this valley. Jesus was also rejected by his brothers and betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. It's more than ironic that Judas also ended his life in the Kidron, hanging from a tree. This word Kidron, it means dark and shadowy and gloomy. The brook was polluted with runoff from the temple sacrifices, and usually its waters carried away the blood of lambs and goats. Imagine Jesus crossing the dark, blood-stained brook. I'm sure it reminded him not only that he was about to be betrayed, but also it spoke to him of the sacrifice that he would make the next morning. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Today, and even more so in first century A.D., the Mount of Olives was adorned with olive trees. That's how it got its name. And there is an ancient garden just above the valley that contains a grove of olive trees. The garden once had a press that squeezed the oil out of the olives. It was called Gethsemane, which means oil press or place of crushing. Olive oil production in ancient Israel was a threefold process. The initial crushing yielded the purest oil, the virgin oil. The olives were squeezed under the weight of a huge millstone. The liquid runoff was used to fuel the flame of the golden menorah that burned in the temple and as a holy anointing oil for the priests. The olive skins that were left then made a paste 
that was gathered together in burlap bags and crushed a second time. This oil became a lubricant and was used for healing. The pulp left over from the recrushing was pressed a third time, and the residue was used as a soap for cleansing. Now, here is a picture of Jesus' final hours. At his initial crushing, Gethsemane, in the garden as he prays, he acts as our anointed high priest. He intercedes for us and he prays for our unity. At Gabbatha, or Pilate's pavement, Jesus is pressed again. This time he's scourged. The Romans turn his back and body into pulp. Isaiah reads, by his stripes we are healed. The beating he endures becomes our healing. And then finally, the leftover pulp was taken to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified for our cleansing. For a third time, he was crushed to wash away our slimiest sins. It's interesting, earlier in the garden, aware of his future, in this threefold crushing of the olive, Jesus prayed three times, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 2 And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This garden was a hangout for Jesus and his men in Jerusalem. It's also a favorite place for many pilgrims today. Walk down the Palm Sunday Road, and the Garden of Gethsemane is on either side of the street. To the south of the street is a church, and in its courtyard, you'll find 2,000-year-old olive trees, probably Under these olive trees, Jesus prayed that night with his disciples. North of the road is a private garden. I learned this a few years ago. If you slip the gate attendant a few shekels, he'll let your group come in and enjoy a time of prayer and solitude. To me, this garden is holy ground. Imagine getting to pray in the very place where Jesus began to be crushed and squeezed for you and me. And of course, Judas knew of this place. He figured this was where Jesus and his disciples would come. For Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, the word translated detachment is the equivalent of the Latin spira, which referred to a Roman military division. A spira numbered between 200 and 600 troops. This posse was probably made up of temple police. And notice they came armed. They came with weapons. Why are they so afraid? What are they worried about? Here Judas is spearheading 200 guards armed with spears. Are they fearful of a preacher and some fishermen turned disciples? Well, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. And what a fascinating insight that is. Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him. Nothing happens this night that catches Jesus by surprise. He knew. He understood. Jesus is in control of every situation, even this ordeal. Well, he went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? This was to defend his disciples. Jesus didn't want them arrested too. He knew the issues the Jews had are with him, not them. And so he's protecting his followers. Well, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. 
Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, here's a miracle that only John mentions. The power of Jesus' presence physically bowled over this temple guard. They were floored, literally. They fell to the ground. And notice the phrase that Jesus uses to address them. I am he. This was his claim to deity. In Exodus 3 verse 14, Yahweh had identified himself to Moses from the burning bush by the name, I am who I am. For Jesus to use the same name, it would be like shooting them with a taser. Knocked them on their backsides. And let me say, the force of Jesus' presence is still flooring people at times. It still has a flooring effect. You know, throughout the scripture, when people come in contact with God, they tend to hit the deck. Yet there's an important distinction in experiences. An unbeliever will fall backwards, whereas a believer will always fall forward. You know, when an unbeliever, you know, when God approaches the unbeliever, he has a stiff neck. God has to break his stubborn backbone. The unbeliever is pushing against God. Thus, when God pushes back, they fall backwards. Whereas a believer in Jesus drops to their knees and bows to their face, they fall forward and lean into God. Don't fall for what the charismatic groups refer to as slain in the spirit, where the evangelist sort of woos you into a trance-like numbing and then, boom, slops you on the forehead, causing you to tumble backwards into the arms of the catchers. People who advocate this practice use this verse as a proof text for their experience. But this event and their event are two entirely different experiences. Well, notice verse 7. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Again, what Jesus seems to care most about are his own disciples. Think about this. He's about to be arrested and then tried and then tortured and then crucified. But his priority now is the safety of his followers. It's just like Jesus. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Brave but impulsive Peter. He's trying to protect Jesus. While Jesus is actually protecting Peter. You know, know, you'll save some headaches if you remember that Jesus doesn't need us to protect him. Did you know Jesus is a big boy? He doesn't need our help. He can take care of himself. In fact, he has every situation under control. Peter is the one here who's out of control. Perhaps Malchus was the first to lay a hostile hand on Jesus. When Peter saw it, he jumped up. He grabbed his sword. He hadn't used it for a while, so he's a little off. He went to chop Malchus right down the middle, and at the last second, Malchus spun out of the way, and Peter clipped off his right ear. It's Luke, the physician, 
who adds, Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Another miracle. Jesus cleans up Peter's dirty work. Hey, Jesus loved Malchus. In fact, he's about to die on the cross for Malchus. He certainly doesn't want him injured now. You know, it's provocative that the last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry was to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own disciples. And sadly, that's the miracle Jesus has had to repeat over and over for 2,000 years. Well-meaning saints like you and me too often take up a sword to fight. And we forget the master took up a towel to serve. Well, then verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I drink the cup which my father has given me? You know, Peter's standing there holding a sword in his hand while Jesus has a cup in his hand. His cup is sloshing over with pain and rejection. He's about to drink it deeply. Peter, on the other hand, knows nothing about the victories that are won through suffering. All he understands are blades and swords. It's been said, Peter fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and achieved the wrong result. Jesus didn't come to crush his enemies, but to love them and to die in their place. And that includes you and me. Abraham Lincoln once said, the only way to truly get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. This was Jesus' strategy. He loves his enemies, and he wants to turn them into friends. This should be our objective as well. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. And Peter chose the right weapon on the day of Pentecost. You remember again, he took a sword. This time, it was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Peter spoke the truth in love, and 3,000 souls were saved. Well, verse 12 tells us, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They handcuffed the Son of God. Can you imagine? Jesus came to set us free from the chains of sin and guilt and addiction and death. And we said thanks by slapping a ball and chain around his ankle. Can you imagine? And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, in a political maneuver, Rome had stripped the office of high priest from Annas in around the year 15 AD, and he had made his son-in-law Caiaphas the acting head of Judaism. But Annas was still a very powerful person in the Jewish community, and so he was first to interrogate Jesus. Jesus is actually going to be tried five times over the next few hours, once before Annas, then before Caiaphas in the Jewish Sanhedrin, or the Supreme Court, then by Pilate, back to Herod, and then finally by Pilate again. Two times in religious court and three times in the civil court. You know, today in Jerusalem, again, you can visit Caiaphas' house. We often do. And you can go down into the dungeon where Jesus was held on this night. You can even see the place where he was chained. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. This is a reference to the accidental prophecy that Caiaphas had uttered back in chapter 11, verse 50. We studied it earlier. I won't repeat it. 
Well, what follows now is Jesus' trial before the high priest Annas. Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. John is going to be cutting back and forth from inside in the trial to outside in Peter. Here, Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. This unnamed disciple could have been John, our author. John does this often. As a show of humility, he often refers to himself in the third person. He does it again. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Though we don't know the identity of the disciple, he was known by the high priest. He had some priestly connections, and he pulled some strings to get he and Peter into the courtyard where they could watch the trial of Jesus. It was a heartbreaking experience indeed. Well, at first, Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, possibly John, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. He was actually led into the courtyard by a little girl. Then this servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? Are you? And Peter said, I am not. Oh, Uh uh-oh, strike one. And the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. Early spring in Jerusalem, the nights can get chilly. They're warming themselves by the fire. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And beware. Beware when you find yourself warming yourself by the enemy's fire. See, this is what we do when we take comfort in sinful activities. Or when we resort to carnal escapes and retreat into things that are sinful. What are we doing? We're warming ourselves. We're trying to comfort ourselves by the enemy's fire. Always beware. Peter is at the wrong fire with the wrong folks, and it's a sure sign that his faith is headed for a disastrous defeat. Always be careful when you find yourself warming yourself by the enemy's fire. That's when the scene shifts back to the trial of Jesus on the inside. Well, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me what I said to them? Indeed, they know what I said. Ask them, he tells them. You know, the ministry of Jesus was not some clandestine operation. All he had done, all he had said, had happened openly and publicly. It's been said, deceit must have clothes, but truth loves to go naked. Truth has nothing to hide. The truth Jesus taught, he laid out for everyone to scrutinize. On numerous occasions, the Jewish leaders had sent delegations to listen to Jesus, to ask him questions. But here they pose as experts in what he had said and done. Their current questioning isn't to discern more information or to derive derive a verdict. It's to find a reason to accuse Jesus and justify their desire to execute him. Verse 22. 
And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do not, do you answer the high priest like that? See, the high priest was treated like some kind of Jewish pope. He had tremendous authority. He supposedly had a hotline to God. He was usually addressed with a string of accolades and flatteries. But here, unlike everyone else, Jesus refuses to kiss up. In fact, he's blunt. Our Lord is unimpressed by human credentials and office and reputations. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? You know, Jesus is appealing to standard Jewish legal practice. In a Jewish trial, both sides had the opportunity to present witnesses. The fact that Jesus is being accused without being allowed to offer a single witness is a sure sign he's being railroaded. Here he's asking for a fair trial. The high priest, though, ducks the question. He passes the buck. We're told then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And this doesn't mean he was transported across town. It could be that the priests were in one compound. Jesus is just sent to Caiaphas's quarters. In verse 25, the scene shifts again from the trial inside the house back to the courtyard and to Peter. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Again, he's warming himself by the wrong fires with the wrong things. Therefore they said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? Are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Oh, no, Malchus has a cousin. He's got a relative seeking revenge. Maybe he's got a sword. This time, Jesus might not be around for a reattachment. And Peter panics. His faith becomes overwhelmed by his fears. And in verse 27, Peter then denied again. How many times was this? This was three. And immediately, a rooster crowed. One night, Mac and I, my son Mac, we were watching the evening news when we heard of the death of a 96-year-old man named Kermit Tyler. Kermit Tyler was an Air Force pilot stationed at Pearl Harbor. Tyler was the man who was manning the radar on the morning of December the 7th, 1941. An arrival of a group of B-17 bombers from the mainland was scheduled that morning. So when Tyler saw the large blip on the radar screen, he said to a co-worker, don't worry about it. Tyler was new to his job. Planes from San Diego were expected that day. But the radar blip turned out to be the first wave of Japanese fighters and bombers. That quote, don't worry about it, has gone down in infamy. When the news that night was over, Mac turns to me and he says, Wow, Dad, how would you like to live your life with that mistake on your resume? I agreed. I can't think of, I can think of only one failure that would be worse. 
And that's Peter denying his Lord. Luke tells us that after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. In a sense, Peter's denial was really not that much different than Judas's betrayal. We really don't know what motivated Judas, but likely it wasn't fear, whereas Peter proved the coward. Imagine the scar he could have carried the rest of his life. In fact, this guilt was so heavy, Judas couldn't bear it and responded by killing himself. But the risen Lord had mercy on Peter. And Peter will show a heartfelt repentance. Jesus ends up recommissioning Peter. In fact, he restores him to the point where now a rooster crow signals the dawning of a new day, not a terrible defeat. And then verse 28 tells us, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. Now the Latin word praetorium referred to the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem. It was located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount platform. It was a military compound called the Fortress of Antonio. If an uprising occurred among the Jews in Jerusalem, it would probably start in the temple precincts. This is why the Romans wanted a presence nearby to monitor what was happening in the temple. They wanted troops in place just in case. During the Passover, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he would journey from his base in Caesarea on the Mediterranean to Jerusalem. And apparently he would stay in the Antonio while in Jerusalem. On this particular night, he must have slept there in the fortress since Jesus arrived in the wee hours of the morning and, and Pilate was in the house. Now understand, the Jews involved Pilate only because it was necessary. They had no other choice. This was a marriage of convenience. For centuries, Israel had executed folks for capital crimes and blasphemy. It was always death by stoning. But in 19 AD, Rome had stripped Israel of its right to capital punishment. So by the time of Jesus, all executions were carried out by Rome. Normally, the Jews, they hated Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. Pilate had zero respect for Jewish religion and tradition. He was uncooperative with them at best. In fact, the Jews had sent formal complaints to the emperor in Rome about how Pilate was treating them. Pilate saw his job as keeping the peace. Often he would placate the Jews. At this particular time, he was inclined to work with the Jews and do them a favor. I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking, hey, if I scratch their back, maybe later they'll scratch mine. And so the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, we're told. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And and this shows you what the Jews thought of Romans. They come to Pilate's house, but they don't go into the house. They would never set foot under the same roof with a contaminated Gentile. They considered sin to be a communicable disease. Enter a Gentile's house and you become contaminated with him. They were especially cautious at Passover earlier that week. During the Passover, as part of the Passover, the Jews would rid their houses of leaven. 
And thus a Jew who entered a house containing leaven would be excluded from celebrating the most important feast of their year, the Passover. And so they refused to go into the house. Of course, it didn't matter to the Jews that they killed the Son of God. Oh, but let's not set foot in an unclean house. Shows you their hypocrisy. How blind the Jews were to the truth. They wouldn't come in, so Pilate then went out to them. Now this Pilate was an interesting character. When the Roman governor crawled out of bed that morning, he had no idea of the enormous decision that he would face before the day was done. What he thought was just another day at the office ended up becoming the most colossal day in the history of the world. And this can happen to us. You know, when you least expect it, you can face an enormous challenge, a life-changing opportunity. Sadly, Pilate failed to rise to the occasion. Pilate's initial approach to the Jews was curt. It was formal, almost routine. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate will soon discover there is nothing routine about this case. It was unlike any decision that he would ever have to make. Pontius Pilate's encounter with Jesus is going to shape both his life and his eternity. When the Jews respond, they don't really have an accusation. Notice this. They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. In other words, they don't give an answer, a legitimate accusation. They just try to intimidate the governor. In essence, they say, Why aren't you taking us at our word? We wouldn't be insisting on death if this man wasn't evil. Then Pilate said to them, will you take him and judge him according to your law? This was the governor's first attempt to pass the buck. Pilate had no clue the Jews were after nothing less than a death sentence. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Obviously, that's why they were there. This is what they were after. But God had purposes in this trial as well. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. It's fascinating. Messiah's death by Roman crucifixion was a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus had said earlier in John 12, if I am lifted up, he was speaking of death by crucifixion. Despite the Jewish tradition of execution by stoning, the Old Testament consistently predicted that Messiah would hang from a tree. Psalm 22, you should go home and read it this afternoon. Psalm 22 describes Jesus' crucifixion 1,000 years before the Persians had ever invented the technique. See, throughout this trial, the Jews and Pilate think they're calling the shots. They're not. They're just pawns in the plan of God. This has all been ordained before the foundation of the world. Then verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? 
See, Pilate, you got to understand, Pilate was a secular Roman. He hates getting involved in these religious squabbles. You know, like folks today, he doesn't like thinking about spiritual issues. You know, he'd rather just stay in his lane. Pilate, man, I'm a good politician. He was a politician. But verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. What a profound statement. Today, God's kingdom isn't a political entity. A lot of people need to understand that. It has no thrones or palaces or armies or even borders. It comes without pomp and circumstance. Jesus is king over a spiritual kingdom, not a physical, tangible one. Thus, his kingdom operates according to spiritual principles. Jesus' kingdom is not about law and force and coercion and politics and power plays and taxation. These were the pillars of Rome, things Pilate understood. No, the modus operandi in the kingdom of Jesus is love. Jesus is a king who gains by giving. He conquers by serving. He seizes by sacrificing. Jesus' kingdom is based on truth rather than brute force, mercy rather than muscle, forgiveness rather than resistance. Caesar was king of Rome, but Jesus is the king of hearts. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I share bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Here Pilate echoes the cynicism of philosophy. Oh, the Greek and Romans, they believed in truth, but they just disagreed on its definition. In contrast, today, we have so-called philosophers who deny truth's very existence. We're being told today that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You know, it's interesting how our modern world is overloaded with facts. Click a search engine and there's information galore. Yet in the midst of the facts, we've lost sight of truth. Ironically, Pilate asked, what is truth to the only person who could ever really solve the riddle, and yet Pilate doesn't give Jesus an opportunity to respond. Don't give up on your quest for truth until you've listened to the one person with the answers. Jesus told us earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're told, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate literally spins from Jesus as if he's afraid to let him answer and tell him what the truth is. Francis Bacon commented on this passage as follows. He wrote, what is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Pilate seemed afraid of the truth. Another author puts it, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. Place Pilate under a magnifying glass, and his thinking gets clearer. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, 
But for fear of the Jews, he refused to release him. Hey, with the truth he did know, he lacked the courage to obey it. And this is the secularist and the humanist problem today. It's not that truth doesn't exist. It most certainly does. But living it requires more courage than denying it. And thus people deny it. In verse 39, Pilate remembers an old Jewish tradition. He says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Pilate was bothered by what he sensed in Jesus. I mean, Matthew gives us some additional information. In fact, Mrs. Pilate had been warned in a dream to have nothing to do with Jesus, to certainly not condemn him. Pilate might not have fully understood Jesus' identity, but he saw enough in him to know that Jesus was no ordinary man. The governor had questioned the truth Yet while he was with Jesus, he felt closer to the truth than he ever had before. Pilate knows that Jesus is not deserving of death, so he starts to look for a loophole, a custom perhaps. And there was an old arrangement that allowed for the Romans to appease the Jews at Passover by releasing to them a prisoner of their own choice. Pilate still doesn't realize the political ploy being played on him. He expects the Jews They'll ask for Jesus' release, especially when they're given the ugly alternative. The other option he offers them is a bandit, a Jewish terrorist, no less, a man named Barabbas. Pilate asked the crowd, do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And I'm sure he expected them to say yes. He was shocked by their answer. Then they all cried again saying, not this man but Barabbas. And it is the last line of the chapter that proves that hatred is illogical. Now, Barabbas was a robber. All Jesus did was heal and help and love and deliver and stand for what was right. Barabbas broke the law at the expense of innocent people. He was an indiscriminate thief and bandit. Who in their right mind would want Barabbas unleashed on society? Pilate figured even the Jews enjoyed the fact he was off the streets. Yet this screaming crowd was not in their right minds. Hatred and jealousy were in control. Pilate underestimated their madness. And this is where chapter 18 closes You got a mob boss who gets a walk while the savior and healer of all mankind is led off to be scourged and crucified. In one sense, it was a travesty of justice. In another sense, justice will finally be served for your sin and my sin is about to be judged once and for all and forever. Father, we thank you.